910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Be sure to check out our other resources, including blogs, posts, and our two award-winning books, No Half Truths Allowed and The Bible Blueprint. You can find everything on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com, including information on our new book, The Final Exodus, Deciphering the Book of Revelation, due out September 1st. You can even contact us straight from the website if you have any questions, comments, or would like to inquire about us speaking at your next women's event. And be sure to follow us on all social media outlets. Welcome back. Chris, I love mysteries, but lately it seems like I can figure out the answer pretty shortly into a book, a movie, TV show, whatever. And it's not that I'm exceptionally smart, far from it. But it seems like more and more mysteries these days all follow the same plot. Maybe they've gotten like Hallmark where they just use the same script and they just change out characters and location. I like when the answer is complex, when it's multi-layered, when it is a real mystery that unfolds. You know, one that makes your brain do some work, one that is a lot deeper and more complex than it first appears. Maybe you even need to get some backstory to understand what's going on. Yeah, and I'm glad that's the kind of mysteries that you like because Paul has one just like that for us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. But before we get to that mystery, let's make our brains do a little bit of work and fill in some backstory. Remember, we said that there was fighting amongst the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles. The fighting was centered around whether or not the Gentiles had to be circumcised before they could be part of the church. We looked at it in detail last week, but This was just a symptom of a much bigger problem. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the physical sign that you belonged to God's people, Israel. Even foreigners who wanted to convert and join the Israelites, even their slaves, everybody who wanted to worship Yahweh or was going to be under the covenant had to be circumcised to keep the law. So on the surface, it looks like the Jewish Christians in Ephesus were just applying that Old Testament concept to the Gentile Christians. But Paul understood that there was something much, much deeper going on here. He's no fool. He knew that the Jewish Christians had a heart issue and they needed to address it. And it might be a heart issue that some of us have, too, that needs resolution. Yeah. In these 13 verses, Paul shows the readers in Ephesus that it's their hearts that needed circumcision, not their body part. He's already laid out some of the groundwork for it in previous chapters. In chapter one, he writes that God the Father chose all those he was going to save before he even created the world. And as soon as he saved them, he gives all of those that he saves everything they need spiritually. Paul also took the time to point out that neither Jews nor Gentiles had anything to brag about because salvation didn't come to the Jews because of anything they had done. And the Gentiles received salvation even though they hadn't done anything. He then exhorts them by his own example to think bigger, by thinking bigger and praying bigger than just for the things of this world. He showed them how to be eternally minded and think beyond just the here and now because it's only temporary. That's right. In chapter two, Paul fleshed out those same truths even more. He drove home that God has elected those he chose to save. He does all of the work of salvation. So again, nobody has anything here to brag about, nor do they have anything to be insecure about. God saves them from beginning to end. 
And as we saw last week, that includes us being brought to life from our dead state, being able to rest in the finished work of Jesus over sin, Satan, and death, and getting the inheritance of eternal life in heaven. Paul admonished his readers to make sure that they weren't adding anything to the gospel, nothing to the finished work of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus anything else equals teaching heresy. It's not salvation. That's right. Not the gospel. And as we said, Paul's letter to the Ephesians would have been read all at once. So his listeners would have heard all that we've looked at in the first two chapters right before Paul hits them with the first 13 verses in Ephesians 3. And all that he's already said is important to what Paul addresses in chapter 3, the issue that's really at the core of the whole circumcision debate. Let's start with just the first verse. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Let's just take the first three words for this reason. What reason does Paul have for what he's about to say? We ended with it last week. Paul told the Jews and Gentiles that they were no longer strangers to each other. They weren't aliens to each other. They were all citizens of heaven and members of the household of God. They were brothers and sisters. So it's because of this truth that Paul's going to address this heart issue with the Jewish and Gentile believers in Ephesus. Right. And before we get to that, let's finish out his first verse. We saw that Paul identified himself as an apostle chosen by Jesus at the beginning of this letter, but here in the middle, he gives himself another title. And here's what he says, prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, that's kind of an odd phrase, but we know Paul kind of has these oddities, right? (laughs) He uses that intentionally, though. Remember, he wrote this letter while he was languishing in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Paul is letting his readers know, make no mistake, I am in prison because it is where Jesus has put me. If he wanted me out, I would be out. Remember the angel breaking Peter out of his cell? Paul understood he was exactly where he needed to be. And he states the fact that he's a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles pretty matter-of-factly. He's not resentful. He's not resigned about it, and he's not restless about it. He's not resentful that he's in prison. He knows it's God's doing. He's not resigned that he has to be in prison and feeling sorry for himself. He sees it as an opportunity to evangelize, as we see from his letter to the Philippians, written during this same time. He says in Philippians 1, 12 to 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And he's not even restless about it. He's not asking for them to pray he gets released or saying he looks forward to the day when he can get released. John Calvin said, and I'm quoting here, the glory of Christ not only overcomes the ignominy of the chains, but converts what was in itself a reproach into the highest honor. And that's the end of the quote. Paul makes the most of being in prison, knowing it's exactly where God wanted him at that moment. He was Christ's prisoner. He doesn't say I'm a Roman prisoner. There's a lot of Gentiles in prison to evangelize to. And we see in other places in scripture that that's exactly what he did. In Acts 16, he and Silas spent the night after a beating 
singing hymns for all of the other prisoners to hear. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Later, when the jail broke open, Paul didn't leave. He stayed. And as a result, the jail guard was converted. Paul should remind us of another biblical hero who was falsely imprisoned and yet was never resentful, resigned, or restless, and that's Joseph. Both Paul and Joseph were given the ability to see that in the words of Andrew Murray, and I love this quote, they were there, and here's the quote, by God's appointment in his keeping under his training for his time. I love that quote. Me too. Great quote. Paul was put in prison for faithfully and persistently preaching the gospel to Gentiles. But like a good story, it took a lot of twists and turns to get there. So let's start with verses 2 to 6 in Ephesians 3, and I'll read them. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's a few important things here to unpack. Chris, you want to start? Sure. In this passage, Paul uses the word mystery three times. He says the mystery was made known to him by revelation. He talks about the mystery of Christ, and he reveals what the mystery is. The original Greek word for mystery is mysterion. The definition of it is that which being outside the range of unassisted natural apprehension can be made known only by divine revelation and is made known in a manner and at a time appointed by God and to those only who are illumined by his spirit. And that's the end of the definition. This word is used 27 times in the ESV Bible. All refer to a truth that cannot be comprehended by man unless they have the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. Now, you could say that that pretty much applies to the whole Bible because without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we can't understand the truths in the Bible. But more specifically, it's used when it's talking about the kingdom of God or the gospel, the wisdom of God, the will of God, or something like that. And Paul knows those mysteries and others can only be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he uses that word a lot in all of his epistles. A lot of the 27 times are Paul using it. Paul is saying that this mystery he's about to tell them was made known to him and the other apostles by divine revelation. And verse 6 tells us what the mystery was, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery was that the Gentiles were to be part of the family of God. But before we get to that, let's look at Paul saying that this mystery was made known to him and the other apostles by revelation. The apostles all received special revelation and gifts, like healing, exercising demons, performing miracles, and it was all done in order to start the initial spread of the gospel and to start the church. And yes, they also received special revelation from the Holy Spirit for their mission. And part of that special revelation was the revealing that Gentiles were going to be brought into the family of God. 
They were shown that the true family of God would be made up of both Jews and Gentiles that God had chosen to save. We said that there was going to be a lot more going on than just Jewish Christians wanting the Gentile Christians to be circumcised. There is this heart issue going on. You can see why it's probably a shock. I mean, you can understand that kind of. The heart issue they've got was that the Jews resented the Gentiles being saved and led into the church. They didn't think those, and they called them this a lot, dogs, as they called them, were worthy to be part of God's chosen people. Okay, so like a lot of good mysteries, we need to fill in some backstory here. First, the term Gentile is used for anyone who wasn't Jewish. And you see it used all the time for different groups. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. It was used derogatorily sometimes to mean ungodly and unbelievers specifically. Second, the resentment of Gentiles by the Jews was not new to the New Testament. It went way back. There was bad blood between the Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it was so bad that Jews would not permit Gentiles into their homes or go into their homes because it made them unclean. So beginning with Moses, it was the Israelites who had a means of accessing God, whereas the Gentiles were not able to enter his presence. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites had the law, they had covenants, and they had prophets to guide them. The Gentiles had none of these. In fact, Deuteronomy 14.2, Moses tells the Israelites, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, Chris, we can see that the Jewish people felt like they were God's people. Absolutely, because they had been for forever, basically. And on the other side, all during the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, the Israelites were tormented and oppressed by Gentiles. The Egyptians, Canaanites, Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greeks, Romans, that's just a few. The Babylonians destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. The Greeks outlawed Judaism, wouldn't let them offer sacrifices to God, slaughtered a pig in the temple. And the Romans slaughtered the Jewish priests. And we could go on and on with all the offenses one after the other that were perpetrated against the Jews at the hands of the Gentiles. Many Jews saw it as them, God's chosen nation, against the entire world. And it was for a long time. Mm -hmm. But that's not how things were going to stay. And the Old Testament pointed this out. There's plenty of indications in the Old Testament that it wasn't the nation of Israel that were God's chosen people, but instead a remnant of them that God chose. Micah 2.12 says, I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Paul quotes Isaiah and David in Romans 11, 7 to 10, when he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. There are also lots of prophecies that God was going to open up his people beyond this select remnant of Jews to include select Gentiles, people from 
all nations, tribes, and peoples. We see that over and over again. We'll just give a few examples here. First, in Genesis, God tells Abraham, in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. This promise foreshadows the people of God are not those physically descended from Abraham, meaning the Jewish people, but all believers from all parts of the earth. Then in the law, God gave several instructions for strangers or sojourners who wished to be included in the people of God. One of those is in Leviticus 24, 22, which says, there shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Yeah, so he was setting it up there. Daniel sees a vision in Daniel 7, 4 that says, to him, the son of man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Hosea 2, 23, and I, God, will say to those people who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And we'll just do one more from Isaiah 49, 6. This is talking about Jesus. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Chris, the evidence is pretty clear and there's a lot more we didn't read that God planned on expanding his people to include the Gentiles throughout the Old Testament. But to be fair, we're on this side of history and can see it a lot clearer. It was a mystery to those living in those times. It was. While God laid out his redemption plan through the prophets, there was a veil over it, meaning that people couldn't have clearly foreseen exactly what was going to unfold. They would have no way of fully understanding that God's son would become fully man while still being fully God. He would be betrayed by his own people, tortured and crucified on the cross, and resurrected on the third day. And even if they understood that Gentiles would someday be grafted into the family of God, they had no idea when it would happen or how it would happen. John Calvin says this, there had always been some of the Jewish nation who acknowledged that at the advent of the Messiah, the grace of God would be proclaimed throughout the whole world and who looked forward to the renovation of the human race. The prophets themselves, though they spoke with certainty about revelation, left the time and manner undetermined. They knew that some communication of the grace of God would be made to the Gentiles, but in what time, in what manner, and by what means it should be accomplished, they had no information, whatever. So Calvin is basically saying that even if the Jews knew that someday God would include the Gentiles, they didn't know the details, which is why some balked at the Gentiles being accepted without having to go through what they had to have gone through as one of God's people, meaning circumcision and keeping the rituals. Right. It's understandable. I'm, it, why it, is understandable. Yeah. it is understandable. And sometimes we are too quick to judge, but like we said, we're on this side of history. It's Absolutely. a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't have Old Testament scrolls to look over whenever they wanted to. No, they didn't. A lot of them were in the dark. That's right. That's right. So getting back to these verses, Paul is telling the Ephesians that the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave Paul and the other apostles and prophets special revelation so they could understand and link together all that the Old Testament had said about bringing in the Gentiles, among other things. They had revelation about other things, too. But even some of the apostles needed further teaching. Even after Jesus telling them, go to all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, and even after he had made reference to it in his teaching, they still weren't preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. It took Peter getting a vision three times for him to fully get the Gentiles were to be included. Yeah, it took him three times. (laughs) If you know the story from Acts 10, Peter is at the tanner's house, which is kind of ironic since a tanner deals with dead animals and Peter's vision is about eating animals. (laughs) But anyway... After he understands that the Gentiles are to be preached to and welcomed into the family of God, Peter goes to Cornelius's house, which was huge because remember the Jews at that time would have considered going into a Gentile's house, something that would make you unclean. But Peter goes, he goes into the house where he preaches and many believe. Afterwards, Cornelius bows before Peter and Peter tells him to get up and not bow to him. He is just a man. Alistair Begg notices something poignant about this whole episode. Peter had just had to teach Cornelius that he wasn't a god, and God had to teach Peter that Cornelius wasn't a dog. (laughs) I love Alistair Begg. Me too. He's such a humble man and such a great, fantastic teacher. He he really is. Yeah, it doesn't even address his accent. (laughs) That's right. And his humor. He's pretty and funny a lot of times. He is funny. And you know what, Rose? He always, I, not, not to digress, but he just always includes so many songs. Oh my gosh, Chris. I was just thinking he quotes the most obscure country songs. <laughs> and, oh, it's, it's so funny. Yeah, it is. It is. He, he is great. And he's got a whole series on Ephesians. It's a lot longer than our series. Yes. <laughs> I think it's 42 messages. And there's something else that Paul realizes that it's amazing and that he feels the need to write about. We see this in verses 7 to 12. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. There's a lot in these verses. And we don't have time to get to everything in this episode. So we are going to revisit this passage in the next episode and deal with some things that we don't get to touch on in this episode. So don't think we forgot it. But for now, Chris, you want to talk about the gist of what Paul is saying here? Yeah, we can get that Jesus refined Peter to change his view on Gentiles and send him to go preach the gospel to them. Jesus chose Peter at the beginning of his ministry. Peter was in the inner circle of Jesus's apostles, so it seems completely logical that Jesus would choose Peter to go to the Gentiles. In fact, we'd probably say that sending any of Jesus's original apostles would make sense. He spent three years teaching them, letting them observe him, 
seeing how he was treated by Rome and the Pharisees. And then he tells them before he ascends into heaven, go and make disciples of the world. Any of those guys, using our logic, would seem like the sensible choice as the instrument to preach to the Gentiles. But since when is God in the business of making what we think seems sensible, the choice that he does? I would say the answer is never. (laughs) Yeah, right. From the very beginning, God has chosen those who seem the least likely to be able to pull something off to do just that. Take Job versus Abraham. Scholars have dated Job to be living during the time of Genesis. So why wouldn't God choose Job to be the father of Israel? Job was already devoted to God. He's even called a righteous man. But instead, God chose Abraham, who was a pagan from a pagan family living in a pagan land. And how about Samson? Who in their right mind would choose an immature, bad temper, selfish, womanizing narcissist to lead their nation? Yet that's exactly what God did. And we could go on and on throughout scripture showing all the obviously best choices that God didn't choose, at least obviously best choices to us, and instead choosing ones that made the least sense. And why is that? Well, if Job were the patriarch of Israel, we could say, Job loved God first, so God chose him. Get where we're going with this, Chris? I do. Once you see election in the Bible, you cannot unsee it. God calling, equipping, and using those who are the least likely to be able to succeed in the calling. It shows that God is the one doing all the work. He's doing all the work of saving and the work of sanctifying. God turned pagan Abraham into a faithful, God-fearing patriarch. God worked through Samson's deficiencies and he killed more Philistines through him than any other judge. And now we get to the New Testament. And as we said, it would seem completely sensible for Jesus to have sent any of his original apostles as the instrument to bring the Gentiles into the fold of God. But instead... He chooses the last person on earth he would think he would, and that's Paul. Paul was not only a Jewish Pharisee who would have been amongst those Jews who hated the Gentiles. He probably called a few of them dogs in his days. You think just a few? (laughs) Probably a lot. But on the other hand, he also hated Jesus followers. So Paul hated everyone that Jesus was sending him to minister to. Talk about least likely. To put this in perspective, it would be like God choosing Hitler to preach the gospel to Jewish people. We all know that Hitler hated Jews, but he also hated Christians. He started a state-sponsored church throughout Germany, and it was a sham to even call it a church because it basically worshipped the government. And any true Christian that spoke out against it, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, found themselves imprisoned and executed. So you can say that Hitler and Paul were the same person except for one factor. And that's a huge factor. And that factor is God. We see it over and over in scripture, a logical argument being laid out, but then it says, but God. Hitler and Paul were the same person, but God, but God got a hold of Paul. He regenerated his heart. He saved him and he guided him through sanctification. Paul proved to be one of the greatest men to serve God and spread the gospel. But God gets all the glory for it. And this is exactly why God chooses the least likely to do his work. So that the world can see 
that there's absolutely no way the person could have come to salvation and accomplished what they accomplished had it not been for God's sovereign intervening. Amen to that. And none of this is lost on Paul. He frequently recounts his past life and Jesus getting a hold of him and completely transforming him. Paul's testimonies usually always include him calling himself the least of the apostles or the worst of sinners. And here in Ephesians 3.8, he calls himself the very least of all the saints. So Paul was humble and it wasn't false humility. This whole section in chapter three, verses seven to 12, is Paul marveling that Jesus chose to reveal himself to Paul and send him out to preach the gospel and bring to light the mysteries that were once veiled in the Old Testament. Paul was actually the perfect person to send to resolve issues between the two. As a Pharisee, Paul was a Jew's Jew, but now he has been commissioned to go to the Gentiles. He fully understands where the Jews are coming from because he was once there. What could be better? That's how he knows that what's going on isn't about getting circumcised or keeping rituals. It's a sinful heart issue. And we see it in several places in the New Testament. In fact, it was a line in the sand for many of the Jews, and many of them turned away from following Jesus because of it. It's at the core of why Christianity turned predominantly Gentile. Chris, like any good mystery, we should be left still thinking about the story long after we've solved it, and this one's no different. So what is Paul taking so much time and effort in telling and showing the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Ephesus that they need to check their heart because like it or not, both are God's people, both belong to the kingdom of God, both belong in the church. What does all this have to do with us? Well, have any of us ever looked at someone at church and thought that that person doesn't act like a Christian or whatever else and we don't think that they're a real believer? Maybe we're a little more subtle and we just look wide-eyed at someone kind of shocked when they would wear a certain thing to church, wear that thing to church or watch that show or talk like that or whatever it is. The point is, if we've ever taken it upon ourselves to decide what a Christian should be, we need to check ourselves. The rule list for being a Christian has one rule on it. Believing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and trusting in that. That's it. There is nothing about how we dress or what we watch or anything else. And we should point out that we're talking about salvation, not sanctification. Right. The Jewish Christians in Ephesus didn't think the Gentiles could be saved without adhering to Jewish law first. So it wasn't about sanctification. It was about salvation with them. Of course, once a person is saved, we should come alongside them and disciple them. And part of discipling is showing them scripture that does tell us how we should dress, what we should fill our minds with, all that stuff, how to live a godly life. But that comes after. Absolutely. And that's exactly what the apostles did. They took away the stumbling block of circumcision and Old Testament rituals out of the way of salvation. But then they told the people how to live, how to live out their faith, basically. As they wrote to them in Acts 21, 25, it says, as for the Gentile believers, they should do what we already told them in a letter. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Jesus 
needs to be the only stumbling block that someone coming to faith has. So we need to get ourselves and our viewpoints out of the way. That's right. And notice that letter was to Gentile believers, not not those they were trying to bring to salvation. Right. Chris, the first time we went to Faith Church where you and I met, it was July. We weren't fully living in our house yet, and we had limited supplies with us. So my family shows up in shorts and t-shirts. And we were walking in, and we saw a lot of very well-dressed people entering the church. And my teenage daughter said to me, she wondered if we were going to get dirty looks or maybe even asked to leave because of how we were dressed. And I told her, if we do, this isn't somewhere I have any desire to be anyway, so I'll gladly leave. And look, honestly, I've been on the other side of this too. I've had my share of judgmental thoughts about some who've walked in the church with extremely tight shirts or short skirts or other reasons. And in both cases, the people of Faith Church didn't know if I was a believer or not. And I didn't know if the people I was judging were believers or not. It's sinful. It's just as sinful as what the Jewish Christians were doing. Paul's been showing us that salvation is 100% from God. Jesus plus nothing is everything, but Jesus plus anything else is heresy. So if we're putting conditions on people, making judgments based on how they look, what they do, or how they behave about their salvation status, we need to check ourselves. We really, we really do. We shouldn't even let what they believe be a stumbling block so long as they believe the true gospel message. Like if they have wonky thoughts about end times, you know, what Revelation says, or they think women should be able to be pastors or anything like that, those are secondary issues. Those are things you deal with later. They're not essentials for salvation. Secondary issues are addressed in sanctification, not salvation. Yeah, and I would even add to that, if a known serial killer walks into church, sincere, you know, tough as it is, we got to get the stumbling blocks out of the way. I mean, we don't be stupid about it. We'd be cautious. But if it seems like he's sincere, you know, I grew up Catholic, but knew absolutely nothing. You know, I started going to Sunday school and church at a Baptist church with my husband, who was a Christian. When I became a Christian, I still knew nothing. And I mean nothing but the bare essentials of the gospel. And they were pretty bare. I was headstrong. I was a know-it-all. In fact, I'm ashamed to say this now, but I remember calling myself a liberal Christian. And Chris, I wish I had known you then so you could have smacked me upside the head. But but I, I wouldn't have, Rose, because I was one too. I was a huge feminist liberal Christian. Yeah, and... You know, that's just where I was. I believed women could do anything men could do. And there was no way you were going to get me to buy that God chose who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. Thankfully, in that church, God gave me a very sweet older woman who patiently, very patiently, put up with me challenging everything and asking millions of questions. And she wasn't even reformed. But the other stuff she did deal with. She'd ignore anything that didn't have to do with the essentials of salvation while she patiently over and over laid out the gospel for me. And I appreciate that so much to this day. Hey, I was an elder in the liberal USA Presbyterian church. (laughs) And I believe Jesus died for my sins, but I was an elder. And then I went to my father-in-law's Sunday school class about, I think it was first and second Timothy. And then I thought, uh uh-oh, 
I don't think women are supposed to be elders. And it's <laughs> God that changes those things. That's, that's right. That's not something I would have ever changed myself. That's right. And it just all of that, that way. Your stuff, my stuff was dealt in the sanctification part, not the Absolutely. salvation part. I mean, imagine if they said, Well, you're a liberal Christian, you can't be saved. Yeah, right. If someone had told me, challenged whether or not I was saved, who knows what that would have done? You know, I, I probably right. would have dug, knowing me, I would have dug my heels in more. Oh, I know I would have. That was my nature. And it was, that's a sinful part of my nature that I still have to deal with sometimes. But yeah, and that's our takeaway from this passage in Ephesians 3. Paul's telling not just the Ephesians, but all of us that we need to remove stumbling blocks from people. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised, if you wear tight clothes, have a foul mouth, or believe that Christians will be taking up arms to fight in Armageddon, which isn't true. If God has chosen to save that person, they will be saved, and we shouldn't want to miss the opportunity to be part of it. So let's make sure that we clearly communicate the essentials of the gospel message and bring others to salvation. We can deal with the rest in discipleship. Right. And Paul nails this in Romans 9, 30 to 33. He says, what does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I'm placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes people fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Paul finishes up this section with verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul's telling them not to get discouraged or feel badly when they see him suffering for his ministry to them. He gladly accepts any hardship and persecutions if it means being used as an instrument to bring people to salvation. And may we see ourselves in the same light that Paul sees himself. And that's a good place to end. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com for everything Proverbs 910 Ministries. Have a blessed day, everyone.